0: Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated. Uh, Tom is one of my personal sports writing idols, and someone who I was really, really excited to get the the opportunity to talk to. I actually, honestly, wasn't really expecting him to even my to even answer the cold email that I sent him when I uh, asked him to come onto the show. So it was a uh, it was a really big thrill to have him on and have the opportunity to talk to him. I thought Tom had some really interesting perspective on on sports and the sports journalism industry in general as someone who really knew from the beginning that he wanted to go into sports writing and as someone who was never really a sports fan as, as someone who didn't root for teams growing up really and he provided some interesting insight into that and how he researches stories and how he does his long form and you know, we talked a little bit about his broadcasting with with Fox as a as a color analyst and that whole experiment and his perspective on co- that coming to an end with this time with uh, with Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds and you know Tom was just uh, was a great guest and he was uh, super nice with his time and uh, he had a lot of interesting things to say. We talked a little bit about his uh, his Bryce Harper story uh, and just kind of about going into. Uh, Going into a place and and researching someone and, and getting to know someone on a pretty deep level uh, when you're writing a story like the one he did on Bryce Harper when he was in high school. So Tom had a lot of insight into just kind of his process and how he researches stories and how he goes about finding stories. And uh, I really had a good time talking to him, and I really hope you guys enjoy listening to our conversation as well. And before we get to the interview with Tom, uh, I just want to remind you guys to subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever place you listen to your podcasts. And if you feel so compelled, please leave us a rating on iTunes as well because it really does help us get the word out on the show. Uh, And just wanted to also thank you guys as well for the very positive response to the Buster Only interview last week. Uh, Buster was a fantastic guest, and I really hope you guys – took something out of that interview uh, whether it you know it's just something about life or uh, if you're an aspiring aspiring journalist if you took something out of just kind of buster's journey up to where he is today i had a really great time with buster uh and it was it was really a pleasure for to be able to share that interview with you guys so uh thanks again for the for the positive response on that and uh, without further ado this is tom ferducci of sports illustrated hope you guys enjoy On the show today, we have Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated. Tom, thanks for coming on the show this week.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Um, so let's so let's get started with where you grew up. You grew up in uh, East Orange, New Jersey. Um, what was it like growing up there?
1: Well, I was actually born in East Orange, New Jersey. That's where the hospital was. But I grew up in <laughs> Glen Ridge, New Jersey, which is right next door. Um, and um, it was really a pretty cool place to grow up. First of all, it was a great school district there. Uh, So I had really, was lucky, a great public school education growing up uh, through grade schools. But I grew up in a part of a big family. I was one of eight kids. Uh, My dad was a teacher, high school uh, football, baseball coach as well. So I grew up in uh, a big family, almost like a team, so to speak, and certainly around sports with my dad being so involved in it. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, So so, um, how did you kind of get into sports and, and sports running? How did you find an interest in that?
1: Well, I think the interest found me, to be honest with you, because I can't remember wanting to do anything else. I mean, from the, from the time I was a, a really young grade schooler, I always loved to write, and I always loved sports. and It seemed like a natural thing for me to do to combine my two interests. Really, more, I would say more passions than interests, even. So I was lucky. One of the rare people who knew from an early age what I wanted to do, um, wasn't sure how to go about doing it, but I just knew that it was a passion of mine. And really, from a young age, not just um, knew that that was my interest, but paid attention to writing, not just sports, but also to sports and writing growing up. Um, and I know that's not the common thing. It's very more common even when kids get to college. They're not sure about what they want to do. But I was lucky that um, it's something that, like I said, I think chose me more than I chose it.
0: So, what kind of, who, who are you reading uh, at, a, at an early age to, get, to gain inspiration?
1: Well, again, I don't know that it was inspiration. I think it was more that, hey, this is what I like doing. I like reading. I like writing, and I certainly like sports. So it was kind of a fun thing for me to uh, just follow. I don't want to say any writers in particular, but just sports in general through the writing vehicle. Um, I did deliver the New York Star-Ledger newspaper when I was a kid. So one of the things that I always did was when the paper was delivered at and uh, whatever time it was, the crack of dawn, five thirty in the morning, and I'd get out there before school, and I'd crack open my pile of papers, and certainly I'd open right up to the sports section, and I, well, I really liked reading the game stories of the baseball games the previous night. Um, so in that era, it was people like Moss Klein, and Van Castellano at the New York Star Ledger, uh the Daily News. Of course, Dick Young was a big time columnist, columnist that everybody paid attention to. But it was really interesting to me, being a baseball fan and if I was able to watch the game the previous night or even follow the game on radio, to then read about it the next day and find out all the things that I didn't see or didn't know or what players said after the game. I was really interested in the story behind the game, not just the result of the game. Mm-hmm. So um, I made it a point to make sure I read the stories before I actually delivered them on people's doorsteps.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Was it was baseball always the sport for you that, that was kind of uh, your favorite?
1: Well, it was always my favorite. I liked all kinds of sports. Um, I played baseball, basketball, and football in high school, but uh, and my dad was certainly more known for being a longtime football coach in New Jersey. Oh. And I have brothers who are football coaches, um, but for me, at an early age, I just, there was something about baseball that really that really appealed to me. And if I could choose any sport, once I got into the business to write about, it would have been baseball. Um, it's just always been my favorite sport. I think it lends itself well to writing, which I didn't know really at the time when I was so young. But the more I found out about it, the more I realized in terms of access and stories and who these players are, it seemed to me like uh, it was a very rich place for a storyteller to, to dive into.
0: What what were the teams that you were following growing up?
1: Well, when I was growing up in New Jersey, I was a Mets fan. Um, my dad, his one of his cousins was Joan Lombardi from Brooklyn, who married Gil Hodges. So when Gil Hodges became the manager of the Mets, myself and my brothers, we all became Mets fans. And you know, certainly at that time, the Mets weren't much of anything in the National League, kind of a laughing stock, but certainly. Once they turned the corner, especially in 1969, uh, it certainly made an impact on me. So that was somebody at the time I called Uncle Gil, and it was more of a personal connection rather than having a team handed down to me from my dad or you know, just watching a team on TV and saying, I'm going to root for them. It was really a personal connection.
0: Mm-hmm. So when, when, you're cover, when you're covering a game, obviously, uh, when you're at the position that you are, you are trying to be an impartial source. But at seeing, seeing the Mets get to the World Series last year, did that mean anything to you?
1: Uh, nothing. I mean, I stopped I stopped being a fan long, long, long ago. I mean, like even before I got to college. Um, you know, I guess I maybe the um, uh, you know, outside of the norm in this regard. But uh, I, I don't get the whole business of, of being a fan. I mean, I love the sport itself. I root for baseball. I root for stories. Um, you know, I really like going to the ballpark, and the outcome of the game doesn't matter to me. So I enjoy everything about. How we get to the outcome without having any emotional investment in it, and you know, for a lot of people, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. But actually, for me, it's it's sort of liberating, so that you know, I'm not emotionally invested in the game. You know, if if a team loses, well, I don't really care. Um, You know, I like extra innings. You know, I'd rather have more baseball than have quote unquote my team win a game. So um, yeah, it's different, especially once I seriously got into the business where, you know, I know it's a matter of you are supposed to be impartial, but for me, it's something that really just came naturally that, um, you know, I really don't get the whole business about being a fan and wearing a jersey and all those things that uh, I was nice when I was a kid. Uh, but for me, again, it's about the stories and, uh, I'll root for stories more than I'll write for teens. Was, was
0: there any reason that that started even before college?
1: um i i don't know i i think um it was just my approach to um to watching the sport i mean i've always been more interested in how the sport is played the strategy of the game how people play it the people who are really really good at it. what is it about how they do it that makes them so special um i, I think what i do is I've probably inherited this from my dad, being, with him being a coach. Uh, the lens I was looking at sports was really through the lens of a coach, and not through the lens of a fan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's probably something that was ingrained in me very, very early on. So it wasn't like I had to make a big transition, and say, "Oh my goodness, uh, I really have to stop being a fan at this point." Uh, and that's why I think, you know, following um, the business of sports writing today. It it like really strikes me very strangely that there's a lot of people who cover sports, who openly root for teams, and it's something that's just really foreign to me. Mm -hmm.
0: How did you think the uh, being a coach's son has affected how you look at players and how you look at sports?
1: Well, I think it's affected me a lot in that you know I know how much work goes into those jobs, uh, both in terms of hours and emotional investment. I know those jobs never end when the game is over. Um, It's not as if the job is over. I mean, I obviously saw my dad at home always working on the craft of coaching. I mean, if a football game was on TV, he would pull up a chair close to the screen with a notebook and a pen. and If there were some players or defensive formations he could learn from, he'd be taking notes off of that. Uh, we had a film projector in the house, and he's always watching film. Uh, you know, one of my older brothers uh, has coached in the NFL, coached in Division One college football, is still coaching now. Another brother coaching high school for football in Virginia. So I'm very respectful for the work that goes into the job, and um, you know I'm not as quick as most people when things go wrong for a team to say fire the manager or fire the coach. Um, I, I know there's it's a much more complex situation in terms of what wins and what loses than who is in the, the pilot's chair, so to speak. So it definitely gives me, I think, a different perspective than most in terms of um, having that experience of being a coach's son.
0: Do you think it affects how you look at players differently as well?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think, again, I think I respect the work that goes into what they do. I mean, the, certainly born with a certain level of, of natural ability, whether it's hand, hand-eye coordination speed, uh, body type, genetics, all those things. But uh, the craft of getting better is something that I've always, always been interested in as a writer. And I think that does come from the same coach's perspective as well. I mean, who are the guys that really work at it? Who are the guys who really invest in it? The things that appeal to coaches, I think, are a lot of the same things that appeal to me in what I look for in terms of uh, even writing a feature story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, as someone who is who is young, I'm 20 years old. Uh, I mean, one of the stories that I've I've followed that you've you know c- chronicled over the last decade or so has been the rise of Bryce Harper. You know, starting in high school, uh, and it really struck me. I remember finding that cover of, of the of Bryce Harper. You know, as a high schooler, uh, being this baseball prodigy, and, and how you chronicled that. When you get a story like that, uh, what are the kind of things that you're looking out for uh, in terms of, you know, at the at the beginning, maybe just identifying that as, hey, this is something I want to write about, and then how do you approach that in terms of um, going about reporting the story and then putting it together as a as a final product?
1: Well, that story was unique because, obviously, it's not often we put a teenager on a cover of I right. right. I didn't know it was going to be a cover story, but um i had heard from some people that there was just this amazing prospect out uh, in Nevada and i thought it would make for a good story from the point of view that hey we see in other sports uh people making an impact immediately at a young age and that's why i made a comparison to lebron james I wasn't trying to say that Bryce Harper is going to be good as as good as lebron james lebron james looked like he could play in the nba when he was in high school and my thinking was well why couldn't that happen someday in baseball? Like someone is that advanced at an early age, that could they could be on a really fast track and not go through the usual growing curve of six, five or six years in the minor leagues. And having a kid at 16 where people were talking about, you know, just from what I could hear from baseball chatter among people, executives in the game, was that this kid was special. But at the same time, I went to that story with a healthy dose of skepticism. Um... Lots of people get overrated, Um, stories get exaggerated to fit the narrative, so I went there really not expecting much. It wasn't like I went there expecting, this is going to be a cover story, this guy's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, not at all. Um, But I got a chance to see him play, I got a chance to meet the family, talk to him, obviously, and the more pieces that I kind of put together, the more it seemed to me that, this is an outlier. Again, not knowing how good he would ever be at a major league level, but I knew at that time he was a very unique 16-year-old. Um, and I'll never forget going to watch him play uh, on one of his high school games. Um, obviously, teams didn't want to pitch to him, so he didn't get a lot of pitches to hit. But one ball that he hit was just such a hard line drive to second base that the second baseman actually ducked out of the way of the ball. um it was right on top of him it was an absolute line drive so it goes past the second baseman it was catchable if he made an effort but just for self-defense purposes he didn't Mm
2: -hmm. uh and
1: the ball actually went all the way to the fence and Bryce got a triple out of it Mm -hmm. and it was something that you know as much as we love to see the ball hit five miles uh seeing the ball hit that hard I was like okay there's definitely something here with this kid
0: what was your impression of Bryce as as a sixteen year old? I mean, this kid was a he was a he was a, pro, a baseball prodigy at that age. I mean, what was he like, and does that differ from how what the public perception of him is today as a as a major leaguer?
1: Well, two things really jumped out at me. Number one was his confidence. Um, he did not act like a sixteen year old kid, but uh, the self assuredness that he had what he, with wh- who he was, what he wanted to do. Uh, the way he looked you in the eye, the way he carried himself. I, and I'm not saying that in a cocky way at all. I just think it's someone who's very sure of who he was. That was very impressive for someone in their mid-teens. And the other thing that stood out was uh the strength of his family. And, you know, there's no question. It's a very tight-knit family. Uh You could see there was a lot of love in the family. He grew up in a great house, had a lot of support there. He spoke very highly of his mom, his dad, his sister, his brothers. And that really resonated with me that, you know, looking at this kid with all this ability and all this talent and now all the expectations, you know, we've seen that crush a lot of people, but knowing he had such a strong support group behind him with his immediate family gave me the, the idea that these expectations are on the right person. He's going to be able to handle it.
0: So what, what, how long were you reporting that story for?
1: Um, gee, I'm trying to think now, but, um, you know, I did some pre-reporting on the story in terms of talking to some baseball people and just getting an idea of if this kid was a real thing or not. And then I was out in Las Vegas. I think it was a long weekend. Um, so, and then some more calls, some writing of the story. So it's probably uh, I want to say two or three weeks. So when you when you have
0: the reporting and 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 you're kind of formulate how you're writing an article, what is what is kind of your process?
1: Well, um, I guess my process really is i mean the biggest part is the reporting, obviously, right. and um once I feel like i, I have enough or at least the deadlines approaching or both, um, you know, I like to sit down and just review all of my my material I like to have all of my material printed out so that I can kind of move things around visually in front of me uh, and not so much have it all electronically but uh, print out my notes, get them in order, uh, and just get a sense of absorbing all of the information and then decide, okay, what is it that I want to say? Almost as if you were thinking of a title for the story or even for a movie that kind of gives you a baseline of what you want the message to be. Um, I think, you should, for me anyway, I start with a very focused idea. This is a story about, and fill in the blank. Uh, and then obviously all the reporting that you've done hopefully brings you to a lot of other areas. It's not a one-trick pony story, hopefully. Um, so I think there's a lot of organization that goes on in your head, uh, if not tangibly, with the notes before you begin to actually start writing.
0: So, I mean, for me, like, on a much smaller scale, like when I'm trying to uh, report on a long-form feature for, for wherever I'm writing for, whether it's a school newspaper or somewhere online, um, I'm always think I like, I've always thought about I mean at what point do I have to start writing and, and stop reporting and and, and you know you, you try to be as thorough as possible but for you when at, at a certain point when do you know when you can you can you can halt with the reporting or maybe not halt is the right word but you can start writing um with with, with the information that you have
2: Yeah
1: that's a great question because obviously um if you want just to keep looking you can always find even the smallest nugget to add on to what you have but at mm-hmm. the same time that means you would never write. <laughs> you could be in the constant position of just adding, adding, adding. Uh, at some point, you do have to jump into the pool. So, for me, as a general rule of thumb, I think when a lot of the material that you start getting back begins to repeat itself, stories you've heard before, testimonials from people that sound like a lot of other things you've already had, um, when the material starts to double back on each other, then I think it's pretty good indication that, okay, I'm in pretty good shape here. I'm not finding out a lot new. Um, at that point, for me anyway, it becomes, okay, I'm just about ready to write, and then there's always some very targeted things that I need to fill out, um, whether it's anecdotes, whether it's research, whether it's statistical, uh, whether it's just you know finding out one small nugget that really completes a story. There's always what I call targeted reporting, more so than fishing expeditions to really finish off a piece. But in general, I think a good rule of thumb is as as things start to repeat themselves. You're not finding out you're close enough new material to what you've already learned uh, begins to to sink. That's probably a good idea. You're close to writing.
0: So you do a lot of long form feature writing and column stuff for Sports Illustrated now. When you went to Penn State uh, to to study journalism, was that what you had in mind as kind of the end goal?
1: That's a good question because I never had an end goal in mind. Um, My approach for whatever reason has been, this is what's in front of me right now. Let me do the best possible job that I can with it. Now, that being said, for me, it's more more fun to dive into stories that take a lot more effort and craft to put together. Uh, And obviously, that's usually typically related to length and feature stories. So I, I think that's a natural thing for me to get into, but uh, I never sat down with a plan that, okay, I'm here at point A and I want to get down there to point Z.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's get going. It was more, okay, I'm here at point A, and let me do this point A as well as I can. But And I think deep down, though, if you ask me for assignments at any particular time, I would much rather have the ones that are unique, that are a little bit longer and require more crafting, so when you
0: so when you got to Penn State, uh, what was kind of your mindset going in uh, in terms of pursuing the journalism? Well,
1: um, for me, it was just to get as much experience as I could. Um, well, again, I just wanted to work and write. So whatever outlets I could find, that's for me what was uh, top of mind in college, and obviously that started out with uh, the daily newspaper at Penn State, the Daily Collegian. Um, and a big part, obviously, when you're at Penn State and you're writing the paper and you're writing sports is to be associated and covering the football team. And, you know, everybody there wants to do that. And I was lucky enough to start doing that as early as my sophomore year. So that was a great experience because you're covering it as a professional beat writer, really. You're writing uh, for a newspaper that publishes five days a week. You're traveling with the team. It's a big time college program so that there are writers coming in to cover the team from Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, New York, um, and seeing the way real professionals work on the same beat that you're on is a great experience. And I tried to soak up as much of that as I can, even if it was just by observation.
0: What was what were some of the takeaways from, from that experience, watching a bunch of professional beat writers come in and cover
1: Penn State football? Um, it was encouraging for me because I think that um, I saw a lot of people who were just doing a job that weren't necessarily like all in, especially into the craft of writing or you know maybe someone's been on the beat for a very long time and you know they're just following the standard process. you know they're going to press conferences that are arranged rather than maybe getting their own one-on-ones after a game with certain people in the locker room. Yeah. Um, so I've always been one that believes that if you if you see what's out there in terms of following the pack and what's the average way of going about doing something, well, guess what? You're going to the average, and being average never appealed to me. So that meant, well, you need to do something that's unique and, and cut your own path rather than following the pack. And I think uh, watching some of that pack journalism going on for me – not that it was an eye opener, but it certainly was an indication for me sure. that um, you know I don't want to be in that Peck.
0: I mean, you seem like somebody who really takes a lot of pride in in the craft of writing, and I think uh, as someone who you know, is a college student hoping to go into journalism full time after college, uh, I think with Twitter and a lot of the the short form stuff, um, the emphasis on really writing great things and beyond like it, writing just great writing beyond the the, the context of sports has kind of fallen away. Uh, have you have you seen that at all? You know, since you've you've got, you know since since you graduated college and, and now are you know however many years into the industry as as a as a really prominent sports writer.
1: There's no question about that. Um, you know, also I'll even go back to when I first started out professionally. Uh, one of the things that did surprise me that there was such little attention paid to the actual writing. Of pieces. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, here
1: I was, you know, maybe a little bit naive coming out of college, um, and certainly I I thought a big part of being a sports writer is actually the writing part of it, and it just amazed me that you got very little feedback or very little professional discussion about what makes a good story, and I kind of learned very quickly on that if I was going to get better as a writer, it was going to have to come... From really my own initiatives to seek out good writing and good writers and try to improve, because there wasn't pr- much professional dialogue about that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think, based on a lot of things you said, we can see that over time, certainly that emphasis has even decreased further. And again, it's certainly not uh, oblivious to the fact that you know younger people now grow up reading much less. They're much more visually inclined than to the print- printed word. And I get it, but I also look at it kind of a different way that as we have a culture that values more visual storytelling than written storytelling, I think that actually provides more impact and power to a well-written story because there's less of it that when you do do it well, I think it has a chance to really stand out even more. Now, maybe the appetite out there and the market for that is less than it used to be, but I think the impact can be even higher we do have a well-written piece. So I don't think it's going to go away, certainly. I think, you know, I like to tell people, ever since, you know, a caveman went out on a hunt and came back and drew a picture in the cave about slaying some animal and cooking it up for dinner, um, you know, there's always been a premium among humans for what good stories told well. And I don't think that changes, and I think even... when it comes to writing the story, not just the visual retelling the story, but writing the story, I I still think there's value to that. And being a
0: part of the the Fox broadcast team over the couple of year, last couple of years, and, and being a regular guest on MLB Network, you've obviously you know stuck your toes in both pools, and and being a visual storyteller and and being a storyteller, uh, you know, in print, uh, how how is telling stories different on those two different mediums?
1: Yeah, it's a lot different. I, I think obviously with television you have to be much more concise succinct. think um, you know I've learned that a well-written phrase doesn't necessarily translate into something that's really good on television um, in some cases it does but in a lot of cases it just doesn't um, you know you can take some great writing and read it aloud and it sounds a little you know coarse to the ear but Um, I think brevity is even more important, not that it's not writing, but certainly in television. You have to get to a point, get to it quickly. Um, I actually think it actually helps writing a little bit and vice versa, because brevity is always good. You shouldn't have extraneous words in your writing, but I think you can be a little more descriptive. You can go deeper into the vocabulary when it comes to the written word. It's, It's harder to do that visually. Um, but I think it makes for some good mental gymnastics, if you will, to do both, because it seems a lot of times like the same thing to a lot of people. You're just covering sports, but the way you do it is very different.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: As, as a writer and as someone who continues to write regularly, uh, who are the, who are the writers that you read on a consistent basis, um, or, or the things that you, the publications that you pay attention to, uh, to to fuel that, that passion
1: for the craft of writing? Well, I mean, I have to start out with Roger Angel, who's, you know, the best in the business and has been for so long that, you know, even if he's doing one of his blog posts and something that's very short, uh, it, it's still a gem. I mean, there's very few people that write where you can say every time they write, you are just blown away. Sure. <laughs> you know, even on what appears to be the most mundane assignments, um, and, you know, he makes it look easy, which to me has always been the definition of greatness. When you can make something difficult look easy, um, and then you're truly great. And so I would start with that. But in general, I, you know, I go with more with publications where, you know, each day I read the New York times. Um, I love reading the New Yorker, um, a lot of things online, especially when it relates to some of the, the beat guys. When there are breaking news stories, to get their local inside takes on some of the trends or breaking stories, um, but otherwise it's uh, it's just a lot of kind of canvassing around and, and seeing what catches the eye. Um, so I, I don't know if there's any particular like every day I need to go to this site. I mean, I guess maybe other than the Times, but um, and I do like reading you know beyond the sports section in the Times, for instance, because I think. The more you get your head out of uh, the sports writing world, that can also improve your writing. I mean, I like to tell college students to be a real good sports writer to me. I think you also have to be a good citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. So reading outside of the sports section is going to be great for your writing because it's going to improve your vocabulary, expose you to different styles of writing. You can recognize what you like, what you don't like. But it also just gives you a broader base of knowledge, which I think is always good because... You know, I, To me, sports are great, but they're most valuable when they connect to culture and, and quote-unquote, outside world. If it's just sports, then it's just, to me, fifth-grade gym class or an entry year basketball. basketball. Um, I always look for some kind of deeper meaning or deeper context. So um, that's why I encourage a lot of students to, you know, not that you have to be an expert on politics or science or health, uh, but also had diverse interests besides loving sports.
0: So once you graduate from Penn State, what was kind of your the career direct trajectory to sports What were the stops that you made?
1: Well, I after I graduated, I actually graduated early. I graduated three and a half years and um my first stop actually was an internship at Newsday. And I did that for three months and got a lot of really good assignments actually. It was much more than just go fetching coffee and sharpening pencils. Um, so when I left there, they said, hey, keep in touch. You know, Let us know how you're doing. Send some clicks once in a while. From there, I went to Today newspaper in Cocoa, Florida, which is a great experience because you've got to do so many different things. Um, and I was there after about a month or two. Uh, I was like one of the top page designers on the editing desk. I was covering the Miami Dolphins as a beat. I was covering spring training. The Houston Astros trained there in spring training. Um, editing stories, design, you know, you name it, every step along the way in terms of printing out uh, a sports section. Um, so it was a fabulous experience. And I was there just a year, and uh, when Newsday had an opening, they called me back. So obviously the, the internship I had at Newsday led to me getting hired full-time just a year later. So uh, the timing of it certainly worked out great for me.
0: What were the things that you did at Newsday once you got there?
1: Well, I was first hired to cover high school sports and to be a backup on the Mets and the Yankees to the Beat writers. So covering high school sports, it, you know, it sounds like a medial thing to a lot of people, but it's a fabulous experience because I don't think you can ever cover anything in the sports department that people care more about. You know, if Johnny scored eight points in a basketball game and you wrote that he scored seven, <laughs> you're going to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of feedback. Obviously, these people are passionate because you're talking about, for the most part, the only people following high school sports are parents, coaches, and players, and they're 100% invested in the outcomes. So uh, it was a great experience doing high school sports and a great training ground, so to speak. And after, uh, well, like I said, I backed up on baseball for the beat writers, and after, um, let's see, I was there about two years, um, I was asked like two weeks before spring training in 85 if I, would, if I wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale and cover the Yankees on a beat. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to remember, at that time, I was 23 years old. Uh, I think it was 23 uh, or 24. I was 24 years old. Fort Lauderdale at the time was replaced to go for spring break. Uh, it was early February, so it was probably a foot of snow outside. <laughs> so the idea of going to spring training in Fort Lauderdale for six weeks to carry the Yankees with a apartment paid for for those six weeks and a rental car, I, I was on the first thing smoking toward Florida. So that was the first time I really got a big break in terms of you know, um, being involved covering Major League Baseball.
0: What did you learn while you were uh, covering baseball as a, as a beat for the first
1: time? I realized how hard it is, how many different flanks you have to cover. In other words, it's not just about covering the game. And you have to remember, this is the New York Yankees in the mid-'80s, run by George Steinbrenner, pre-cell phones, pre-internet, when the Yankees wore the Bronx Zoo, when there was news happening at any time, and yet a lot of times it was happening in places that were not in front of you, um, whether it was Steinbrenner ripping somebody or... Uh, something happening away from the field or trade discussions being made. Um, it, it was very, very difficult and obviously a very competitive environment. This was time right when Newsday began uh, to aspire to be more than just a Long Island newspaper going into New York with a New York City edition. So it meant competing with the Daily News, the New York Times, the New York Post, um, and people, veteran, I'm talking about veteran writers, on the beat. That all of a sudden I'm competing against in the same turf. Um, to me, there was nothing harder at the time, uh, and equated it to you know, signing up to be a Marine and they send you to Camp Lejeune. You know, if you can make it through that, then everything else doesn't seem that hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How did you deal with the
0: competition? You know, working with a bunch of these veteran writers who've been covering the Yankees for forever. How did you, as a young writer, uh, deal with uh, having to compete with these kind of people?
1: Well, it was really hard because, especially because you're dealing with people that had years in and already had the trust with sources and ha- access to people. Um, and I learned that there's really not much you can do in terms of, sh- um, giving, having, developing a shortcut to those kind of processes. In other words, it takes time to get people's trust. You have to be around day after day after day. Uh, you can go in with the best intentions, but developing sources is something that doesn't happen very quickly. Um, so you learn to hang in there. You learn to take your lumps. You know, you learn from those phone calls from the sports editor first thing in the morning. And again, this is pre-internet days, but, you know, the New York Post or the New York Daily News had this story. How come you didn't have that? Uh, it keeps you on your toes. It makes you work really hard. It keeps your antenna up all the time. And you, but you also learn that, um, it's like there's a big sky out there. You know, you're not going to get every story. You're going to miss some stories. And if somebody breaks a story, You realize that's going to happen, and the best thing to do is take that story and take it to another level, find something new from that story, uh, or else go off on another tangent and find something new, that you are going to get things other people have, but a lot of times they're going to have something that you don't have. And you just really quickly have to understand that that's the way it happens, especially covering George Steinbrenner's Yankees, because he was great at playing the writers off one another. Uh, Sometimes he may give you a story and sometimes if you were not in good graces with him at any particular time, he intentionally would give a story to somebody else. So uh, there was a lot of back and forth and you had to realize that almost like players say, you know, you can't get too high, you can't get too low. There's ups and downs to a long season. It's certainly that way on a beat.
0: Is there any one instance you remember where you saw Steinbrenner play the writers off each other?
1: Oh, there were a lot of times. I just can remember that there are times when he would want to get the message across. I mean, most of what he did would be done by telephone. Um, but I remember one time where the Yankees were struggling early in the 85 season, um, in Cleveland. It might have been the first series. And, you know, we'd gone to the clubhouse, interviewed players. Obviously, the park was empty. There's nothing going on back in that old municipal stadium. You had to walk through the stands and up through the, the is to get back up to the press box. Uh, and lo and behold, on the stairway that led up toward the press box, Steinbrenner, quote-unquote, happened to be standing there. And clearly there was a message he wanted to get across to I me. Mean, I think he ripped his team. And, um, you know, it was something that he couldn't plan on. And, again, this is pre-cell phone, so it wasn't like he checked in with George every day and see if he would get back to you. Um, but I learned some of it is happenstance. You know, if I had been in the clubhouse a little longer or a little less, Um, I would have missed that little summit meeting on the top of the stairs because we weren't all there. So a lot of it was making sure you were in the right place at the right time. Uh, And that's why in those days, especially in spring training, uh, we never left the premises until Steinbrenner left the premises. And a lot of nights, he stayed there late. They used to have trailers outside Fort Lauderdale Stadium where Steinbrenner would sit. Uh, and if you left while he was still on the premises, you risk losing a story. And that's the last thing you wanted to do. So, um, it also reminds me of Billy Martin covering the Yankees with Billy Martin as the manager meant you had to cover the hotel bar after the game. Um, and it was really a competitive thing because Billy obviously liked to drink, but he liked to tell stories and give out information when he was drinking. So if you didn't go, you were at a competitive disadvantage. So that's what I mean about covering a beat. Where you think about covering the game, and that's it, you are pack up and go home. It wasn't like that at all with the Yankees. It just was nonstop.
0: Is there? I mean, do you remember any specific instances with Billy Martin where, um, where? I mean, it just it, it seems fascinating just uh, from my perspective to to get that sense of competition uh, on that beat.
1: Well, for me, um, I had a pretty good relationship with Billy. And, um, in the, in the, all these years start coming together, but the one year where he was fired, um, he really, a guy who was once a great baseball mind, a great baseball manager, became very sloppy with the way he ran the team. And I had a lot of the pitchers telling me that they were upset with the way they were being used. Some were using, being used way too often. And some, like a guy like Bob Shirley, weren't being used at all. I'm talking about, but weeks would go by and guys wouldn't get into games. Um, the rotation was in constant turmoil. No one knew when their turn was coming up. Uh, they weren't pitching very well. They didn't have a great staff to begin with, but there was a lot of turmoil about how the staff was being used. And I wrote a story about that. And like I said, I did have a good relationship with Martin, but after that story ran, and I think we were playing, the Yankees were playing in Detroit at the time, we were in the manager's office, which in the old Tiger Stadium was right in the clubhouse itself. Um, it was just a little box, if you will, with an open door to the main clubhouse. And, you know, the first thing Billy did was to air me out about the column that I wrote in front of the other writers. I'm sure it was loud enough for the players in the room to hear. and It was very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he did it there for a reason because it made him look good standing up to me. Um, But at the same time, I understood. I mean, what I wrote certainly wasn't written out of any malice. Um, I thought it was well-informed. It wasn't like I was taking a gratuitous shot at him. Sure. It wasn't long after that that he was fired, but that's you know, not the reason why I wrote it. I was just doing my job. But um, you learn that, you know, as a writer, especially as a beat writer, there's a big difference between developing trust and befriending people. Mm-hmm. And you really have to walk right up to that line of befriending them and just make sure you have their trust. Um, so, and also Billy was just, you know, a very volatile person anyway. Sometimes you'd go in there to his office, and he was the greatest storyteller in the world, and some days he'd walk in there, and he's basically hungover or sleeping or very combative. You weren't sure what you were getting with day to day. So, guess it's all part of the education as a young writer. You run into uh, a very eccentric group of people. Maybe sure. not so much these days, but sure. certainly back then.
0: What, was that one of the Was that interaction with Billy Martin one of the more contentious ones you've had with, with a player or a manager?
1: I no, I mean, thankfully, I haven't had too many. Um, but you know, you do the job long enough, and actually, if you do the job well enough, you're bound to have conflicts with people. Um, you know, people have to understand, and they don't always do that. Your job is not to be a supporter of the team even though you know there's this phrase like our writers or our guys who cover the team, I mean you really shouldn't be beholden to the team in any way. And so sometimes when things go bad, you have to write things that aren't complimentary about sure. performance um or even ways sometimes they go about their job. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it they don't understand, but um yeah, I mean you do you're going to have conflicts at a time where people don't like what you what you wrote and they will call you out on it for sure. So you 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 joined Sports
0: Illustrated in nineteen ninety three. What was that whole process like? How did you uh, get that job and uh what was it like for you to to be a part of this inst the sports writing institution as someone who clearly valued the uh the craft of
1: writing in sports? Well, for me it happened pretty quickly. I was writing I would become a national baseball columnist for Newsday and that for three years. And at the time, um, the first thing that happened to me after the '92 season, uh, the New York Daily News approached to me, approached me about becoming a general sports columnist with Daily News. Um, so I think I don't—I've never known this to be true—but I think that Sports Illustrated at least heard something about it or got wind of that, um, or maybe it was just coincidental timing that it wasn't. It was very soon after that that they approached me about coming to write for the magazine.
2: Um,
1: so it was nice to be wanted, of course, and nice to have opportunities like that and decisions to make like that. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say it was an easy decision. It's certainly not. There's there's a lot of positives in both of them. But I think what you said was really the bottom line that I had a chance to write, you know, longer features and um, really dive more into longer pieces. And given the resources that Sports Illustrated has in terms of time and space and budget and all those things uh those things really appeal to me so again it's funny it's it's not like i ever sat down and said you know someday i want to write for sports illustrated um certainly understood um how great the magazine has been and i mean who would want to work for sports illustrated as a sports writer but sure, course, it wasn't yeah. like that was my defining goal so but uh certainly it was uh it was a great thrill when they told me that they wanted me, and the best thing that I think they told me when I first got there, and I think it was Steve Wolf, who's at ESPN, had been there for years now, he told me, you know, listen, the reason that they hired you here is because they like your stuff. Don't feel like you now need to do anything different or be something else, because, you know, what attracted this place to you in the first place is the stuff that you've written already. Mm-hmm. So that was... I, that was a great piece of advice for me uh, to resist trying to do too much at a new place, especially a place like SI.
0: What was... Uh, what is one of the the mistakes that you made early on in your career that sticks out that you took took away from?
1: Um, in terms of mistakes, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but early on, I just always uh, worried or concerned myself with job security. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's like I... I always wanted to feel like, you know, that I was established enough that I really had a home there. Um, so I probably worried more about, you know, do they like this story or, you know, am I doing a good job instead of just doing my job, I'm kind of worrying about the outcome of what I was doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, not that it consumed me at all, um, but it was probably worrying about something that. I, you know, it wasn't going to do me any good anyway. Sure. Um, so I think just probably that first year or two, just wondering where I stood in the hierarchy and if this doesn't work out, where do I go from here? Uh, it's probably a lot of wasted brain cells. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, I, not necessarily mistake. It's probably a natural thing when you get to a place like that. You're young. You're just mm-hmm. trying to make your way. Um, but looking back on it, uh, I can say it's it probably wasn't very productive. Uh, I mean, since
0: you have got to Sports, uh, Sports Illustrated, the journalism industry has really changed it a lot, and the media industry as a whole has changed a lot. What have you kind of seen, uh, how how your job has kind of changed since you've
1: gone to SI? Oh, wow. A lot has changed, certainly. I think, you know, the premium... Well, I'll go back even when I was in college. One of the things I learned early on, Journalism 101, is when in doubt, leave it out. And the most important thing was to be right beyond anything else. So I had writing style, um, you know, being on time with your work. You know, the first rule of thumb is make sure you're absolutely factually accurate. That's the definition of what journalism is. And I think over time... uh, you know, the kind of shift towards being fast rather than right um, has certainly changed. It—it uh, it, it, I'm not going to say people don't care about being wrong, but I think the consequences of not being 100% accurate um, are just not the, shame, are the same as what it was, say, 25, sure. 30 years ago. Um, so, again, we talked about the fact that it's, The appetite for people to really devote a lot of time to longer pieces, sit down with something well-written, has diminished, so uh, definitely more of an emphasis on shorter pieces, quicker hits, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That certainly has changed as well. But I also think the biggest difference, probably, I know, just in the the world of baseball writing, is the volume of material that's out there. I mean, it's a golden era for anybody who likes to read about sports, because... Mm -hmm. There's so much good stuff that's out there, um, whether it's just sabermetrically, whether it's feature stories, whether it's blogs. I mean, it's amazing. It used to be that you waited until Sunday to read anything about teams outside of your area, um, and you were just desperate to read about other places. I can remember going to San Francisco and coming back with their sports section in the Chronicle. They had these green pages. They called it the Sporting Green and show it to some other people. Um, and now, at the click of any button, I mean, you've got you get the world at your fingertips, the mm-hmm. baseball world, and there's so much to choose from. Um, the only thing I'll say about that, though, is it, I can tell that the reader is not very sophisticated or discerning when it comes to that information and how it's presented. Um, it's kind of like, you know, where the material is coming from. I think there's so much of it that now I don't think there's as much of a premium on this is a trusted source. I think it's more of this is interesting, rather than where it's coming from. Is it true? I don't know. Maybe true, but I read it here. Um, so it's almost like there's so many TV channels that you know that some get uh, or that it, they kind of blend into one another. That none stand out as being say having greater standards journalistically than others it's just all becomes one melange and i think a lot of that has happened with writing as well um, and i would like to think that people would want their information as close to, or from the sources that are close to the sources as much as possible sure. Um i equate that to like the food industry i'd rather have food as close to the source as possible and when it comes to covering baseball, I'd rather hear from people who are as close to the game and as close to sources as possible rather than second, third, and fourth hand. But I'm not sure that the general public looks at it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it certainly has changed. And, and I think Twitter has
0: really contributed to the wanting-to-be-first aspect of, of sports writing and, and how that has become of much greater importance over the last you know, five, ten years. You are someone who isn't on Twitter. Uh, what is your kind of your your thought process behind that? Well,
1: I would I wouldn't say no to anything. Like in perpetuity, I mean, we'll see what happens going forward. But you know, a lot of the things that I'm interested in or do well don't necessarily translate well to Twitter. To Twitter, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. I can't stand self promotion. Uh, I don't like ridicule. Um, I don't like throwaway lines. I don't like anonymity. Uh, I don't like uh, misuse of the English language. (laughs) All those things are what Twitter is good for, but not necessarily in my wheelhouse or my interest even. Mm -hmm. So my interests are more towards creating something and crafting things that have a shelf life, that have depth to it, Uh, and obviously that's not the strong suit of Twitter.
0: Mm -hmm. And was that a conscious decision you made Early on, or, or is this just kind of like at a certain point? What what's kind of the point of getting on
1: Twitter? Well, I guess that's the question. You know, what is the point of getting on Twitter? What there should be a purpose rather than saying, "Well, you know what, everybody is doing it, and therefore I should do it." Um, there should be a targeted purpose for use of any tool, not just picking up a tool because someone else has it, but. What do you hope to get out of it?
0: Well, for me, for so, me as, um, as, as someone who uses Twitter on a daily basis, I mean, for me, Twitter has kind of been a place where uh, I've not only discovered a lot of writers around the country that I probably wouldn't have heard of otherwise, but um, as someone who consumes a lot of news content, it's become kind of my newspaper every morning. One of the first things I do is I open up Twitter and I refresh and I see what stories are trending and uh, what my favorite writers are saying about and it is just kind of a great aggregator of sorts.
1: Right. No, listen, I think there's a lot of good things about it. And, um, you know, certainly people who have um, just gotten into the habit of it and the rhythm of it, uh, I'm sure it's a very productive way, as you said, to kind of aggregate um, source material from a lot of different places. So I'm not saying it's a worthless uh, operation for sure, obviously. But the other thing I've seen is I think I've seen at least, just talking about my experiences in baseball, people who have changed the way that they write and the audience they write for because they are so deep into twitter mm-hmm. and the reference to quote unquote the Twitterverse being say upset about this or ripping a team for that sure, you're giving way too much credence to people that are outside again far removed from your primary source material yeah you and don't i don't think... even know who these people are right. and the fact is that the majority of people are not on Twitter. Yeah, the vast I, majority of people And are I think not that's something Twitter. that a lot so of you're people... Dealing with a very, you're dealing with a very small subset of people and it becomes mm-hmm. an echo chamber. And it's not the real world. Sure. Again, I'm not I'm not saying it's not valuable, but I'm saying it's It's not the only uh, place where you should get a, a feeling for what's going on. Sure. Ideally, you're the one covering the sport and what you know about the sport from your sources makes you the expert rather than Mm -hmm. crowdsourcing your expertise.
0: And I think that's something that is very easy to lose perspective on because when you're on Twitter, it feels like the whole world is talking about something. But in actuality, it's just the curated, you know, hundreds of people that you decide to follow on Twitter saying about something. And like I can say a lot of most of my friends aren't on Twitter. Um, And it's a very small select group of people who are on there who are generally of the same – Uh, mindset or come from similar backgrounds or have the same ideology.
1: Exactly. And I think a good example for me recently was um, when there was some discussion at least um, on Twitter and elsewhere about the National League adopting the DH that actually people began writing that it's possible we are going to see it at the start of next season, 2017. Um, And this was all based off one question at a post-owners meeting Press conference of the commissioner of baseball. And that's not what he said,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: looking back at his quotes. And then I called up the commissioner, and he said, you know, it was a complete misrepresentation of what he said. He's actually in favor of the status quo, that there is no movement towards the DH. Uh, And it's something that people began just interpreting, people who weren't there. One didn't see the original quote, or didn't hear the original quote, mm-hmm. um, and as it moved down the line of people putting their own interpretation on a quote they didn't hear originally, it became well, the National League's moving toward the DH next year, and it wasn't true. Sure. Um, and that's why, again, you know, being as as close to the original source material as you can is really most valuable. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, as uh, as personally as a, i mean you you moved into television uh and and were in the in the color commentary chair for a couple of years on Fox with Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds uh when you got that opportunity uh what what was what was kind of the the task of taking on that challenge of doing something that is uh, probably a very different skill set than what you are as a as a feature writer
1: yeah well i've been doing games for a while in the booth uh obviously it's high profile position when you're on the lead team um, but it's tremendous responsibility. Um first of all it's something that I really enjoyed doing, so it was a blast and still is. I'm still doing games as an analyst and I still love doing it. Um, you know, there was no model for me. I mean there hadn't been a writer who was the lead analyst on a World Series. It was not um so it's something that I could do organically, what was what appealed to me and the information I wanted to bring to me um, was new ground. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to be, and still don't try to be, that former player. Um, you know, just uh, relying on playing expertise in a job that's very different than playing. I'm talking about broadcasting. I think too many people conflate the two of them. Sure. That if you are a great ball player, well, you must be a great analyst. I I can't challenge played the game.
2: For mm-hmm.
1: me, I can't stand that mentality. It's a totally different job. And the game changes faster than ever. That if you played 10 years ago, even five years ago, what you know about the game is not necessarily as applicable directly as it is in today's game. So in some ways, I felt a freedom that I am not bound by the way I looked at the game from my playing days. And I can't fall back on that lazy crutch of saying, well, back when I played, this was—I this is what I was thinking of in that situation. Well, we're not mind readers, and you played in a different era and different circumstances. So to say this is what that guy is thinking out there, um, to me, I'm happy that I don't have that because I think it's, it's a crutch and sometimes it's a hindrance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would much rather prefer to talk to the player, ask him what he's thinking, what he's working on, what his game plan is, talk to the hitting coach, talk to the pitching coach. Um, and everything becomes factually based and not opinion based. Sure. So if I put something out there, it's nothing that I've made up. It's nothing that I've pulled from my playing days. It comes from original source material, talking to these people and understanding how they do what they do.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: I actually feel a certain freedom in that regard and also a responsibility in that regard, in that regard, because, you know, I'm going to have to, uh, be, um, to dive as deeply in as I can,
2: mm-hmm. because
1: I don't have the resume to fall back on. So I think it cuts both ways, but on the whole, you know, I'm glad that I can kind of do things in it in uh, in this way rather than just saying, "Oh, back when I played." Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
0: what was your biggest takeaway from from being on that top team with Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds?
1: Um. I mean, like I said, the biggest takeaway, it's a lot of fun. It's like, for me, anyway, it's like a lot of work, a lot of preparation. It reminds me a lot of putting a feature story together where the prep work is far more uh, heavy than the actual work itself. I mean, you do a feature story, if you do it right, you should have a ton of material left on a cutting room floor.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: it's the same with broadcasting a game. I mean, I'll go into a game, and I better know exactly what... What matchups the manager wants to get to, what matchups he wants to avoid, every single one of them. What those relief pitchers throw in certain counts, what are the good matchups, uh, and obviously, you, not all those matchups are going to even come close to fruition. But you better know all of them going in. So there's a lot of uh, prep work. I happen to really enjoy the prep work. I like looking at video. I look like looking at patterns. To me, it's almost like putting a scouting report together before a game. Uh, so I'm not surprised when something comes up in the course of the game. Uh-huh. Um, just as an example, during uh, last year, um, the Kansas City-Toronto series, where Volquez had not given up a home run on a change-up in like a year and a half. And I only do that from the prep work. I went back and I found the last home run that he had allowed on a lot of change-up was Cody Ashey I think in 2014. I counted up the number of change-ups he had thrown without giving up a home run, which is an amazing streak. I think it was more than 2,000 pitches or something. Um, and what were the chances that he was going to allow a home run on the change-up that day? You know, maybe 100 to 1. Well, he actually did. Chris Calabello had a home run on the change-up. And I was able to say right at that time, that the first home run he allowed an X number of change-ups thrown um, before the The game had started. I had given some of this information to producers, and they had gone back and they found the video clip of Kodiachi's home run. Uh So we were all prepared for that. And the only way you can be prepared for that is to do the work. And again, the likelihood of it happening was zilch, or close to zilch, and it actually did happen. Uh Um, So again, it gets back to the fact that you have to be prepared for so many different circumstances and possibilities. And again, like a feature story, you're not ever going to come close to using all of them. But that, to me, uh, is where being a journalist and a sports writer has been a really good training ground for doing TV work. Because I think a lot of it is preparation. So much of it is preparation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you see your, your job
0: changing uh, or what do you want to do over the next 10, 10, 15 years?
1: Well, I mean, I'm really fortunate because I love what I do. Um and, you know, I, to me, I just want to keep getting better at it in all phases, whether it's writing or broadcasting. Um, to me, it's about finding, continuing to find good stories, even better stories. I think that's where our premium really is on at this, at this point. Um, you know, I've never wanted to write or talk about everything that everybody else is talking about. Um, I want it to do when everybody's acting. And the things that I write, whether it's SI.com or for the magazine, to me, uh I'm proud that they're organic, they're originally generated. I don't like to piggyback on trends or what everybody's writing about, which means you have to force a different take, a quote unquote hot take, something that is popular or trending at the moment. Um I'm looking for really good stories, um and to tell them well. And a lot of times those stories are not in the main. Uh you can bring them into the main if you write them really well. Um, uh, but it's more about cutting your own path, doing your own work. Um, so I want to continue to do that um, I'd love to get more involved with uh, writing books uh, unfortunately for me there's just not enough time because I don't want to do a book unless I can do it really well which is like it's the only way I like to do a lot of things is I want to do them well and a book is a huge commitment so uh, hopefully there's some time where I can carve out some more time um, You know, I can remember going back a long, long time ago, there was something that Winston Churchill said that really resonated with me. He said, I'm easily satisfied with the very best. So it's kind of like the way I operate. When I want when I do things, I want to make sure that I do them really well. So to do a book, just to do a book is not a great idea, but to do a book because I have something to say and can do it very well um, and hopefully have the time to do it that way is the goal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, on a personal note, uh, just for me, like being a, a young sports uh, you know hopeful sports writer down the road. um you're somebody who I've read since I was a little kid, and so it's a it's really it's really an honor and a thrill for me to be to be talking to you about your career.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's like I tell a lot of young students you know you really have to start out with a passion for something like this where it's a field that's so competitive, yeah, uh, I think passion alone will take you a long way to be honest with you, and certainly hard work um because you know, getting out there and getting yourself published and getting opportunities even with a little or no pay is something to me that shows that you're willing to work, which is to me the bare minimum of how to get ahead in the business because certainly nothing is going to be given to you.
2: Yeah, like I've been um, and
1: also the bottom line too is and I think it's true in any business, if you treat people with decency and courtesy and um you're a trustworthy person That goes a long way, because I am dealing in a business that's a communication business, but also the backbone of it is trust. I mean, the reader has to trust you. Your sources have to trust you. Uh, And I think, to me, the only way you do that is by being a decent person. Mm
2: -hmm. And that takes
1: time for people to understand that. But uh, to me, um, and again, I think this applies to any business. The trust is the backbone of being successful. (laughs) Yeah, like I've I've wanted to become a sports writer since
0: basically I was in third grade and I realized I wouldn't be able to play baseball professionally. And so I just – I can't even imagine doing anything else at this point. I'm so excited just for uh, – I mean I get excited whenever I get an opportunity to write for anyone. But when I have an opportunity – this summer when, I, when I'm going to have the opportunity to write an intern for The, the Washington Post, like that's like something that I can't even – I still haven't processed and I've known about that for maybe three or four months now.
1: Well, I congratulate you on that, both on the opportunity and the outlook that you have. Because you know, I was very similar. That if if someone had actually really sat me down and told me what the percentages were of succeeding and making it in the business at all, and how many people wanted to do the same thing that I wanted to do, um, I don't know if it would have scared me. But I'd like to think that it wouldn't, because. Uh, I never thought of another avenue. I never thought of failure. I never thought of things weren't going to work out. And by working out, I mean just having a job in the business. It mm-hmm. didn't have to be at Sports Illustrated. It could have been anywhere. It could have been mm-hmm. still at Today newspaper in Florida.
2: Sure.
1: Um, so that I was kind of single-minded about that, but I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we all like to have fallback positions, but I think when you talk about pursuing a passion, you don't need a fallback position because you want to exhaust as, uh, as much of that opportunity as you can.
0: That really means a lot to me. Um, like, it, I mean, I've I've had people talk to me, for, I mean, for a while now, just being like, you know, make sure you know journalism is a hard, competitive business to get into, and make sure that you're always thinking of all your options. And I've never really thought about any I, about being able to do anything else.
1: Well, I think that can carry you a long way. I really do, because um, you know, I see people who, you know, maybe aren't as invested in it and it's hard for them to stay in the business or even get into the business, um, that just the will to want to do it is a huge part of it. Because when you do that, you're going to go after it with more enthusiasm. And I, for instance, when I have an assignment at Sports Illustrated, I found over the years that in general, when it's a story idea that I've come up with, the stories generally turn out better because I have a personal curiosity about it.
2: Uh-huh.
1: If it's a story that is assigned to me, not to say that I can't plan to do it, it's never the case, but it's just a different level of personal curiosity around sure. know, fulfilling somebody else's assignment than chasing the personal curiosity. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think if you have that enthusiasm, um, that's going to translate to how you go about fulfilling that assignment in terms of digging deeper for reporting or really wanted to craft something that's really well written not that you don't always want to do that but there's something extra when you have a personal investment in it Mm
0: -hmm. tom ferducci thanks a lot for the time uh this was a very enlightening conversation for me uh and i hope it's uh enlightening for everybody listening as well you got
1: it and all the best to you
0: So that's the show for this week. Thanks again to Tom Ferducci for coming on and talking about a whole variety of things. And I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you guys did enjoy the conversation, please make sure to subscribe to us on whatever podcasting thing you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. Make sure to share the show with any of your friends if you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, And if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Lee. And you can also follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod to stay up to date with uh, episodes coming out every single Wednesday on the Hardball Times. Uh, Next week, we have Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated. Uh, We talked about media and just kind of the general state of sports media and how we got to Sports Illustrated. Uh, It was a really fun conversation as well. and I'm looking forward to you guys listening to that. So until next Wednesday with Richard Deitch, uh, I hope you guys have a good one.